Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong un. I'm a left wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What a great show we have today. Democratic strategist Adrian Elrod is going to come by to talk to us about the midterms with Democrats and messaging. Then we're going to talk to Shannon Watts, who's, of course, the founder of Moms Demand Action and a board member of Everytown for Gun Safety. And she's going to talk to us about the gun violence in Buffalo this weekend, as well as a host of other issues. But first, let's have some fun. Andy Levy. Molly Jongfest. We're coming off a weekend of five mass shootings. One that captured the headlines, though just one of five, uh, was this incredibly tragic, I want to say it was racially motivated, a shooter, an 18-year-old shooter, drove from somewhere between two and five hours away and shot up a grocery store in Buffalo, shooting 13 people, 11 of whom were black, in a largely black neighborhood. He has a screed of white replacement theory, a manifesto that looks like something you might read in conservative media. I mean, obviously, just absolutely horrific. And we're at the point where there's just no words to describe it. The fact that it was, as you said, only it was one of five mass shootings this past weekend is just unreal. But that's that's where we are as a country these days. He left a 188-page manifesto filled with white nationalism. Yeah. You know, we're a political podcast, so let's get into the, the icky politics of this, which is that, as you said, this guy was a you know, full-on racist, full-on anti-Semite, full-on believer in this absolutely, you know, ridiculous and obscene great replacement theory that has become a huge deal on the right. It's really become one of the GOP talking points. Yeah, no, it really has. And it's, and, and, and I mean, they're all scrambling now to try to say that it's, that that's not true, but it's true. A fascinating thing, we have Stefanik, who was at a time thought of as sort of a more normal member of the GOP, that's out the window, and instead of apologizing or saying, you know, there's no place for racism in this party, she attacked the media and said that they were twisting her words, which we all know is not true. So I think that we're not seeing, there are fewer and fewer Mitt Romneys in this party. No, I, that's absolutely true. A mere couple of years ago, she was not like this. She was just more of a run-of-the-mill GOP 
politician. And now she, you know, she jumped on the MAGA train, but she doesn't even have the courage of her lack of convictions. And, you know, now that people have people have died because an 18 year old asshole used those theories as the basis of his worldview. Now they're now they want to run away from the theories, which look, if if someone went out and killed a bunch of people because of stuff I'd been saying, I I'd want to run away from the stuff I said too. But that doesn't change the fact that you said it. And doesn't change the fact that Tucker Carlson has been promoting this on his very widely watched show, you know, for the past uh, six months or a year or however, or maybe longer, however long he's been harping on this replacement theory. And, you know, of course you had some of the, uh, some of the very fine people down in Charlottesville were saying Jews will not replace us. And it's important to know that they weren't, they didn't mean they were going to be replaced by Jews. The, the ultimate great, great replacement theory is that it's, you know, it, it's that you're trying to change the demographic of a country to make it more favorable to your party. And that's that's the claim is that the Democrats want all these. And let's just be honest, whether they say it or not, they want that the Democratic Party wants brown people to come in and assuming that they will vote Democrat and they will change the demographic makeup of, of this country. But behind that theory is, as it always is, the notion that this is a Jewish plot. So when the people in Charlottesville were, right. were chanting Jews will not re- replace us, that's what they meant. They they didn't mean, you know, we're not going to be replaced by, right. by they, Jewish people. Right. They meant we're not going to let the Jews get this evil work th- their evil magic and get this plan through. So so what you've got now is you've got people out there like Ben Shapiro and stuff like that saying, you know, you can't say it's replacement theory that the Republican Party is talking about because the replacement theory is that it's it's all the Jews fault and none of them are saying that. It's like, yeah, sh- shut up. Like Ben Shapiro is the last you know, he's just trying to make Jewish Republican work and he'll do anything he can, you know. I know, and it's just it's it's pathetic and it's awful and let's be perfectly clear whether whether Tucker Carlson, whether Stefanik, whether Matt Gates, whether any of the other, you know, scores of Republicans who talk about great re- replacement theory and talk about replacing people, whether they actually say the Jews are behind it or not, it doesn't matter. It's the same theory. And it all boils down to the same thing. And also, eventually, those people are going to come for the Jews. Like of the course. fact that Ben Shapiro somehow thinks that they're just going to kill. The people who aren't Jewish but who are minorities is, like, completely crazy. The thing that I want to focus on here is that, like, the immigration is down, right? There's no—you know, how are they—you know, this fear of immigrants is not based in any kind of real— you know, there are certainly people at the border, but not, you know, not in— the quantity in which the anxiety is set up. You know, this is really just one of these anxieties that has almost no real bearing in the real world. Yeah, I think you could make an argument that Joe Biden's immigration policies are at least functionally to the right of Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush and George Bush. I mean— Yeah, I think a lot of people are not happy with his immigration policies because they're nothing— yeah, he has not changed much from Donald Trump. I mean, and as you said, you know, people on the left are not overjoyed with with Joe Biden's immigration policy. So it's the caravans writ a little larger. 
Every time there's an election coming up, so every even year, basically, whether it's midterms or presidential, we get everyone, you know, the right starts harping on these migrant caravans and, and our open borders. Our borders are like, could not be less open, it seems to me. But they harp on that because, look, they know fear is a is a powerful motivator for voting. And particularly on the Republican side, that's really all they have. You've got an entire party based around fear. So that's what we get. And But then, of course, when you have a guy out there, and look, I don't know that this guy watched Tucker Carlson. He may not have. I don't, I don't believe he mentioned Tucker Carlson in his, in his, I don't even want to dignify it by calling it a manifesto, in his screed, I think is what you called it earlier. Yeah, that's a good word. You know, I, I, I don't think he mentioned Tucker Carlson. But the, the fact of the matter is, he is exhibiting the, it's the same ideology. Well, and it's the result of a culture where white nationalism is the mainstream, yeah. Yeah. In the Republican Party, white nationalism is pretty well mainstreamed at this point. And sure, so so yeah, you're going to get a, a guy driving, you know, hours from where he lives because he wants to find a neighborhood that has, you know, a high concentration of black people because that's who he wants to kill. And the idea that we're going to now pretend that that shit is divorced from the stuff that the Republican Party has been peddling for, I mean, I'll be, you know, I'll be polite and say since 2016, although I, you could you could yeah, go back much really earlier than that. But that. it's been, yeah, Newt yeah, Gingrich, I mean, Ronald right, Reagan, it, Nixon. No, absolutely. You know, I guess what you could say is maybe it's been more, it's been more overt since 2016. It's a lot more of the, I'm sick of this expression, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's a lot more of the quiet part out loud. Like there are fewer quiet parts now. You know, there's a a lot more stuff at full volume. And no, I'm sorry, you're not getting away with pretending you're, and, and what's amazing is like Stefanik and people like that. Oh, they're the victims now. She's the victim. Like people, people are lying there dead because of an ideology she's been pushing and somehow she's the victim. Fuck off. Well, that's that's the sort of brilliance of these conservative victimese is that no matter what happens, somehow you're able to be the victim, you know, no matter what really happens. It's all you're the victim. I mean, it's completely strange. I think there are two issues here, right? There's one is the white nationalism mainstreaming and radicalized people taking this ideology and using it to hurt people. The other is the proliferation of AR-15s, which is the gun for these kind of crimes. I think that that is, we have had times in American life where there have been bans on these type of assault weapons. And again, I mean, obviously, this we're not in a place where Democrats have had a great deal of luck legislating on guns, but clearly we have a real problem in this country. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say I don't think that's a problem that's going to go away. I think this country has made that perfectly clear that regardless of anything, the guns are safe. People may not be safe, but the guns will always be safe. And I'm going to say this as a former gun owner and as someone who, maybe no one will listen to this, uh, used to be an NRA member. <laughs> they suck. I mean, the NRA the NRA absolutely sucks. And and they've done great damage to this country. And, and again, I'm saying this as a former member uh, and someone who bought into some of their stuff for a while. 
I will say, <laughs> I guess in my defense, I will say that I quit the NRA when Obama was president because it was just like I would get their magazine and it would just be all this anti-Obama stuff. And I was like, yeah, you clearly, this is about a lot more than guns for you, isn't it? It's there's something about, there's something about Barack Obama that really bothers you. Never could quite put my finger on it, but uh, there was something. I don't know. Yeah. The NRA may go away and we really don't hear much from them anymore, I guess, since all the lawsuits and everything, they've kind of been neutered. This country is, it's gun culture and it's car culture, and it's really hard to change that. And I don't want to just throw my hands up and say, like, I don't even like talking about the guns part of it because I just feel like it's, nothing's going to happen with the guns part of it. Like, maybe we have a chance at changing the, you know, at calling out the white nationalism bullshit and doing something about it. I just... We are never going to have enough politicians in this country who want to actually do something about the guns, or even if they want to, who will, will actually do it. 200 years from now, you know, when we're all wearing scuba gear to <laughs> record our podcasts, maybe I'll be proven wrong. But I don't think in the near future that you're, you know, I think the Democrats could have a 65-35 majority in the Senate, but, you know, you'd have enough people like you'd have enough mansionite type people that you would still not be able to pass meaningful gun legislation. I, I really believe that. Yes, I agree. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I hope they do pass something. So as we are taping this, Elon Musk is tweeting little poop emojis to the CEO of Twitter. <laughs> no one knows what it means, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Elon Musk's Twitter acquisition has gone the way many Elon Musk things go off the rails. <laughs> I'm starting to get the sense that Elon is going to put some people on Mars before he owns Twitter. <laughs> That's my hot take. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, I got to say, I saw the poop emoji thing, and I think the Twitter guy was talking about how tough it is to quantify spam and stuff like that. I wasn't exactly sure because to be Quite honest with you, I just kind of rolled my eyes and kept scrolling. Right. Because I'm just, I'm, I am so over Elon Musk. And, and again, look, I just, part of me, like, I love, I love space. I love the idea of going to space. I, I love watching the SpaceX launches. I love when they land, you know, the, the, uh, the fuel tanks or the engines, whatever it is that they're, uh, that they land on the barges. I just think that's, for me, that's a real sort of look what we can do type situation. Like, it's just amazing to me. But he's such a shitbird and I'm done with him. I don't know how else to say it, but he's just, honestly, he's not that smart, I think. And I think, I think he's good at some things. Like, he's good at buying companies like Tesla and whatever. But I, I don't think on like a day-to-day -day basis, he's just not that smart a guy. And I think you're right, Molly. I, I think, and I've been more hesitant about this than you have. I will, you know, you've been strong about the idea that he, he was never going to buy Tesla. Uh, I mean, uh, Twitter. Yeah. But, uh, but I've come around to your way of thinking on this. I just, I think he's looking for ways out now. I mean, honestly, I just never thought he had the money. And also, by the way, taking a company private because you like the tweets. I mean, there are really much better things to do with your money. You would think, yeah. I mean, I'm just yeah. saying, like, especially right now, you know, I mean, you could do a lot of stuff with your money that would be a better use of it. And you mentioned this earlier before we were taping. 
thing when many of the best conversations happen, that the lesson Elon Musk has taken from Trump and Trumpism, which I think is really, you're right on here, is that attention is good and he needs to get it. There are a lot of people who are like worried he's going to run for president. I don't think he's going to run for president because he's South African. But I do think that this attention economy is going to be a situation that we're going to see more and more of. And and you even see this with these Congress people, right? They are like Stefanik got this job in leadership and then doubled down on these white replacement theories and this sort of crazy stuff because it got her attention and fundraising. I mean, she saw MTG do it, right? I mean, this is the this is one of the results of this attention economy. No, absolutely. And I, I, I just, I wish, like, if you're that much of a narcissist and you need attention, at least can't you just do what, what the normal narcissists do and host a podcast? Like, it's just, it's so much better. <laughs> you know, I, I just, <laughs> Elon Musk, get a podcast. <laughs> 
Adrian Elrod is a Democratic strategist who's worked on campaigns for Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. Welcome to the new abnormal, Adrian Elrod. Thank you, Molly. I am so honored to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. I've been listening for a long time and obviously a big fan of yours. So thank you. Well, the feeling is mutual, Brad. Yes. So, but I want to talk to you about the destruction of the Republican Party. I feel like this was, this weekend was, Elise Stefanik has the worst luck in American retail politics ever. Mm. I mean, remember when she was actually kind of normal, where she was like, when she was a never Trumper and she was like this moderate Republican from New York and was sort of like embraced by some of the former, like the never Trump former Republican women. And now she's not only like MAGA, but she is ultra MAGA all the way, unapologetically. She's really leaned into this MAGA thing. And it's quite remarkable because I haven't looked at the latest numbers on her discharge, but I worked at the DCCC during the 2006 cycle. And upstate New York is a weird place. I mean, it can it can flip pretty quickly. I mean, look at Kirsten Gillibrand's race when she ran for the House. Of course, she's now in the Senate. Those races can flip pretty fast. I don't think that she's necessarily in jeopardy, but she certainly is putting um, herself in a situation where Democrats are going to re- really want to target her down the road. It's interesting because it's like, so on Friday, she did this tweet that was like, Democrats are pedophiles. Or it wasn't quite that, but it was, it embraced QAnon language in a way that we have not seen a more mainstream Republican do. And she is in leadership. And then came a sh- mass shooting with a shooter who had a manifesto that read like something out of white replacement theory. So in normal world, like pre-Trump, this would end a politician's career. Oh, God, yes. I mean, without a doubt, I look at the, you know, you look back at the things that used to end politicians' careers, like, you know, a d- domestic violence charge, just one domestic violence charge would, would force a, a politician to step down. You know, one erratic comment in a scrum with reporters um, might cost a m- member of Congress to resign, a politician to resign. Trump changed all of that. He upended all of that. And now you've got people who are going to the extreme and not only going to the extreme and documenting their extreme comments on a way that you can never take it away. I mean, that tweet will live with her for the rest of her life. It will live with her in, it will live with the Republican Party in, in, in going in, into infamy. But yet there are no repercussions. I mean, the only right. repercussion is for us to you know, vote these people out and to run strong candidates who fit the district, fit the profile of their district, who can beat some of these folks. But it is quite remarkable how dramatically things have changed just over the course of the last few years under Trump. It's interesting because you've seen sort of the party change. I mean, I think a lot of people thought in January that when Trump was gone, Trumpism wouldn't get worse in his absence. Well, yeah, I think we all kind of wondered what that was going to be. I mean, and I think it's it's still sort of left, you know, I think the jury is still out to see what kind of form Trumpism takes, but it, it certainly has gotten worse. And, you know, look, I, I believe that Democrats are g- going to do well. I think we're going to not do as bad as some people think in the midterms in 2022. And I think certainly at this point, if Joe Biden runs for re-election um, and it's Trump is the uh, is on the other end of the ticket, um, that he's got a pretty decent shot of, of winning. But, you know, what does happen, Molly, if a Ron DeSantis, somebody who certainly espouses some of the crazy and, you know, frankly, scary viewpoints of Donald Trump. What if he ascends to the White House? Um, He's somebody who is, I think, in many ways, worse than Trump in terms of his viewpoints, um, but has a more moderate way of sort of, you know, discussing those viewpoints. Um, How does that change the equation? How does that change Trumpism? You know, I think those are things that we 
don't necessarily believe will happen in terms of him ascending to the White House, but we have to account for the possibility that it could happen. And how does that change? Yeah, I think of like the worst thing is a DeSantis playing by Trump rules. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, you look what he's d- done with Disney. You look what it, some of the, um, you know, insane laws, of course, in Florida, um, the 15 week abortion ban, which um, would, would be a trigger law that would go into a place um, if Roe is overturned. I mean, he's a very, and of course, the way he handled COVID, he's an extreme version of, I think, some of these ultra MAGA Republicans, but he comes across as sort of like the guy next door that maybe some folks want to have a beer with. And, and those are the ones who are really scary, the ones who are sort of hiding behind their ultra MAGA viewpoints, but coming across as maybe at least in some respects, a little bit more of a normal person. Those are the like politicians. It, like Yunkin is a great example, a great example. Patagonia wearing, you know, got his little logo go on his red Patagonia fleece, which, you know, I, Patagonia is not too happy about that. <laughs> that way. Um, they're a pretty progressive company that is very right. pro um, environment. So, uh, yeah, th- those are the folks that scare me. And, and the Republicans, look, I mean, Molly, they are, we can say a lot of things about the Republican Party, but they are somewhat smart in terms of how they recruit candidates and how they run certain candidates and races that, you know, sort of fit, at least from a personality standpoint, the the politics of that region. And Glenn Youngkin was somebody who came in there. He looks like a normal guy, you know, it looks like kind of your 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 rich dad next door, uh, rich middle-aged dad next door, but he is somebody who espouses extreme views. Um, and those are the types of Republicans that I think we're going to see more of in some of these districts that you know, they're trying to flip some of these states and these districts they're trying to flip. One of the complaints I get from a lot of Democrats, we have a lot of Democratic Congress people on this podcast, and one of the complaints okay. I get a lot. <laughs> Great. One of the complaints we get is that they feel that Biden is not doing enough sort of orating. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, is that just normal midterm complaining? Is that true? Would you like to see him out there more? I mean, what's your hot take? First of all, this White House, Molly, as you'll certainly recall, has done such a great job of handling the COVID pandemic and most importantly, protecting him and protecting some of the other senior level or obviously protecting him and the vice president. So they have not been traveling at least the first year they weren't traveling as much. Right. And certainly on the campaign that I worked on, we were not we were you know, everybody was pretty much quarantined to their homes because that was pre-vaccination. But I think you will see him out there more. I mean, the White House has made it very clear that he is going to start, you know, contrasting his message more with Republicans. They're, they're using the term ultra MAGA, uh, which I think is extremely smart. And you will, will see him out there more. I mean, look, it, summertime is a great time to hit the hit the campaign trail, you know, go out there, sell. Pre- President Biden will be out there selling his agenda, um, you know, selling the infrastructure bill. I just saw, I think, something in my inbox this morning that, He's going to be traveling more over the next few weeks, um, selling infrastructure. That's something that I think you're going to be seeing a lot of, not just from President Biden, but from the cabinet members as well. And of course, from the vice president. Um, And look, you know, memories are fleeting. People may be complaining. Members of Congress may be complaining now. But I think in a few months when you really see President Biden out there on the campaign trail more, not just selling his agenda, but also appearing um, with some of these candidates, some of these members who are running for re-election, congressional members up and down the ticket, then you'll, you'll you'll hear less of those complaints, and you know you'll you'll hear more about the 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 great accomplishments of this administration. It still drives me crazy, Molly, and I think this is something that is you know not just the administration's 
not necessarily fault, but something I know that they're they're working on rectifying. But it's the fault of me. It's the fault of anybody who has a platform who's going out on television, talking to the media, doing your podcast. I mean, the president has a great story to tell. This economy has recovered from a once in a generation pandemic far better than we ever expected. I mean, there's been significant job growth um, and not just jobs that, you know, are, are getting the unemployment numbers under 4%. These are jobs that people actually want. These are good paying jobs. Um, there, there's a story to tell here about how the economy recovered and recovered better. And I think it takes the administration and, you know, candidates who are running for, for re-election, it takes, and, and then people like us, it takes all of us to go out there and tell that story and talk about it because um, the American people should hear directly from the people who are part of making that story happen. They should be hearing from those folks more often on this. What races do you feel like you're a little bit excited about? Well, I got to tell you, this Pennsylvania race is, I realize it's timely because the primary is tomorrow. Tomorrow? But it is um, very exciting. And I mean, I do love the Democrats. Let's first, we need to talk about the Republicans. I know. So we have a candidate that is so Trumpy, she's like almost too Trumpy. She's too Trumpy mm-hmm. for Trump, right? Yeah. Who won't yeah, he answer. He hasn't even endorsed her. And she's, yeah. Yeah. Too and she won't answer questions about her military service or about where she grew up or where she <laughs> lived or who she is or what her mm-hmm. phone number is. Okay. <laughs> she got a mean piece written about her by Selena Zito, which I think should, I think, speak all the volumes in the world. Then we have TV Doctor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Dr. Oz, who, you know, despite his Trump endorsement and despite, you know, having extremely high name ID and... You know, I think pretty much every household in America knows who Dr. Oz is. If they haven't, then they probably haven't been watching network television or didn't watch network television. Um, But yet he is still not breaking away from the pack. In fact, you know, the race is at a dead heat between three candidates at this point. And it's very telling. And I'm looking to see, does the Trump endorsed candidate who has extremely high name ID actually break through and win tomorrow night? And that's going to be fascinating to me. And look, I, you know, I think we can't necessarily dictate Trump's influence in every single race because there are some candidates in past primaries that he's endorsed that who won. Of course, um, J.D. Vance in Ohio being, you know, a prime example of of one. But Charles Groper... In Oklahoma. Charles Grover, no, in Oklahoma. And then there are people that he's endorsed who, who have not won. So I think it's really hard to like sort of tell his influence. But yeah, he didn't win. Charles Groper didn't win either. And he, and he didn't win. Exactly. Exactly. But I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with, with Dr. Oz. And look, I will tell you this. If Dr. Oz does win or if this other crazy woman wins tomorrow night, um, I think Democrats have an extremely good chance of flipping that seat, especially when you've got really great candidates like John Fetterman, uh, Malcolm Kenyatta and Connor Lamb running. Um, those three are, are, you know, it's a shame that they're all running against each other because they are all such great candidates in their own right. But of course, they'll all, whoever wins that race, um, the other two will campaign very heavily for them. Uh, and, and I'm excited about this race because that could be one that we flip and we could certainly use some races that we flip going into the, the 2022 midterms. So let's talk about uh, what's happening in New Hampshire I, that yeah. seems like a really important seat for Democrats not to lose. 
I'm a little more, I think, optimistic than a lot of people because I have these cousins who live up there and they said they don't know who the Republican is who's running. Oh, that seems like great news. That's really good news. <laughs> I feel like that's good news. Well, yeah, it's, it's really good. I mean, look, Molly, you and I both, we've, we've, you know, you covered these races. I've worked on a number of races where something like that happens and the, and the Republican still wins because they just yeah. have an R by their name. Yeah. Um, but, but I think Maggie Hassan has done a good job of sort of moderating her positions. I was pretty disappointed, frankly, to see that she took such a strong, strong, um, stance on, on the border issues. Uh, she went really hard against rescinding title 42. And that was a bummer to me. Cause I think if you're a Democrat, and especially if you're running statewide, you have to give those progressives like the, 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 the most active part, the most active wing of the democratic party, you have to give them something to get excited about. And you have to give them something to sort of, you know, to give them some hope. And this really, that did frustrate a lot of progressives in, that, in, in, in New Hampshire when she took a pretty aggressive stance regarding Title 42. Um, but for the most part, I think she's running a good, pretty good campaign. New Hampshire is just one of those weird states, you know. I mean, people think it's, you know, it's New England, so therefore it's like, you know, it's solidly blue. But there are times where it is not solidly blue, and a lot of those right. times are the midterms. So that's going to be one to watch. You know, I feel like, especially with Roe being in jeopardy, I think that yeah. um, that that helps Maggie, and I hope that she will take um, sort of take the ball with Roe and run with it because I think that's something that can get her, can get her over the finish line and, and make sure that we hold that seat in Democratic hands. You're a Democratic strategist. What do you think about this strategy where you have these Democratic senators who sort of don't do media? I mean. She, Maggie's a good example. Also, Cortez. I mean, where they don't do national media, maybe they do some local media, but they're pretty scarce. I mean, do you think that works? I am always a little bit on these Democrats because it's like one of the things that people liked about Trump. And, and I'm not in any way saying that I liked anything about that lunatic. But one of the things that people liked was that he was accessible. Yeah. He would do his own tweets and you would feel like you could interact with him, even if it was negative. Yeah. And I wonder if like these old school politicians who just don't engage are are sort of leaving votes on the table. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it really depends. I mean, first of all, I'm a big believer, Molly, that if you're good with reporters and you're good on message and you can defend your policy positions and you can draw a contrast with reporters, then I mean, with your opponent, I'm sorry, then yes, you should be talking to reporters. You should be doing a lot of media. Um, I do understand, I guess, kind of the decision to to do less national press and and more you know focus your, your press more on, on local you know speaking to local reporters doing you know local broadcasts local radio local you know conversations with local reporters but I think it's smart when especially if you're running for the United States Senate Senate and you're running for re-election by the way I mean my god go on MSNBC it's the friendliest network you might have one or two challenging positions but it, I mean challenging questions but if you can't defend your position on some of the the, what the, the, the policy for? positions that you've taken because you're running in a you know a swing district or you're running in a tight reelection, right? Then maybe you should rethink everything. So and plus you can raise a lot of money. I mean, Rachel Maddow is is known for being a giant fundraising machine for candidates, not because right. she's trying to, but you go on there, you get exposure to all these really hardcore national Democrats and um, right. who have money. And these are like people who are going to give you $5 donations, which is exactly the kind of donation that you want, um, grassroots donations. So I think candidates should be doing a lot more press. I realize time is limited, but I would be 
um, you know, trying to do, trying to talk to as many reporters and trying to reach as many people as possible. If I was a, uh, if I was a candidate. Where you see our listeners happen to be extremely engaged, tend to be Democrats. Tell us where they should be focused. If there's a candidate they should be supporting. Oh, yes, of course. Well, look, I'm very excited about Stacey Abrams and um, and Raphael, Raphael Warnock in, in Georgia. I think that's Georgia is just such an interest, it's interesting state because it's, of course, trended more Democratic in recent years. But, you know, I was a little nervous about that those two races just because Georgia is so marginal. But I think with right. Roe being in jeopardy, um, that has changed the equation on everything. And you know, Stacey is, is is a hero in Georgia. Right. And has registered a lot of voters. Has registered a lot of voters and has put a lot of voter protections in place to the extent that she can for someone who's not currently hold, holding elected, elected office. Um, she's really a big energizer, not just for voters in Georgia, but for somebody across the country or candidates across the country. So my eyes are on that. Um, you know, I'm also, again, going back to Pennsylvania. I just think Pennsylvania is such an, an interesting state. Um, you know, Biden nearly won that state, I think, by 1.2 percentage points in 2020. Of course, Hillary Clinton lost that state by less than a percentage in 2016. Um, it truly is the ultimate example of a swing state. Um, and I again, I was kind of worried about Pennsylvania until I thought Mehmet Oz might be the, right. the nominee or this other crazy woman, Kathy Barnett. And it doesn't, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to, you know, jump, put the, the car before the horse, but it doesn't feel like Dave and McCormick has the, the wind in his sails like those other two do. So yeah, it doesn't seem like it, even though he hired many members of Trump world. I mean, just crazy. I know. What does that, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? So yeah, I would say that those two states, you know, Florida, I'd love to see Val Demings beat Marco Rubio. My God, that would be a dream. But she's raised a ton of money. She's raised a ton of money. And, and it's, I, I, I think her campaign is being extremely well run. This is not a criticism of her. It's more of just Florida becoming a more and more red state. I mean, I'm, I'm interested, Molly, to see what happens in 2024, because as you know, Running a presidential campaign in Florida is so insanely expensive. You've got basically five states under one state, under one umbrella. That's, you know, the, the, the northern part of the state is so different from the southern part of the state. The middle part of the state is more like a Midwestern state. The, uh, the, the you know, northern part of the state might as well be Alabama. And then, of course, you've got the Cuban and Hispanic community in the southern part of the state. So it's really expensive. It's really hard to run a campaign there. And, you know, if Florida looks more and more out of reach, you know, at the presidential level for Democrats, I could see Democrats putting more money into states like Georgia and North Carolina, try to solidify some wins there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to just seeing what the margins are in that race in Florida. But I love Val Demings. My God, she's incredible. And I would love to see her upset Marco Rubio. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Thank you for joining us. I hope you'll come back. Thanks, Molly. I would love to. Thanks for having me. Shannon Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action and a board member of Everytown for Gun Safety. Welcome to the new abnormal, Shannon Watts. Hey, how are you? I'm thrilled to have you here, and I'm so thrilled that you could come on. First of all, you've been working on this for a long time, but are you sort of shocked at the proliferation of shootings? It feels insane. And I don't know if that's because I follow it so closely and this is the work I do every day. I think we expected that after the pandemic, given the millions of guns sold, given the laws that were loosened, given the Trump administration, I mean, he had the ATF selling allowing curbside gun sales. I think we expected that when things got back to so-called normal, 
we would be in for a crisis of epic proportions. But then you have to marry in the conspiracy theorists and the hate speech that we're seeing become normalized as part of the right-wing platform. And that is clearly a recipe for tragedy and disaster. So a good example is that in Buffalo, during these church services, there were people who were heckling Tish James because they're so furious that there aren't gun laws in place. I mean, what could theoretically be done? Well, you know, there's only so much control Tish James right. has, right? Yeah. Um, this is a huge problem with many tentacles, right? And, and it's really the culmination of extremism and easy access to guns. So it, it isn't as simple as one law fixes everything. Now, that said, there are certainly so many things that research and data shows us that we can do to address this issue. So first of all, let's look at the federal level, right? We, we haven't even been able to pass something as simple as a background check on every gun sale because Republicans stood in the way of that back in 2013. Lots of gun legislation that has been shown by data to save lives has passed the House. It has not passed the Senate. And these are things like closing the Charleston loophole, right? The gunman in Charleston was able to get a gun, even though he had a criminal history and was a prohibited purchaser because of the loophole that allows a gun dealer to sell a gun if a background check hasn't cleared in three days. That seems like a pretty simple loophole that we can all agree needs to be closed. And yet Republicans have stood in the way. We also want to have a director of the ATF. Right. We haven't had one for nearly a decade. So President Biden has recently nominated Steve Dettelbach. We are all in on on working to make that confirmation happen. Um, And then certainly there are state and local laws. You know, we don't have all the data yet, but it sounds like New York's strong gun law worked. This teen who lived 10 minutes from Pennsylvania may have gotten his magazine there, the high capacity magazine he used. The state has a red flag law. However, it doesn't sound like it was utilized because this kid was a minor when he made the, the school shooting threat. Right. So red flag laws work, but only when they're used. So there has to be education and and implementation that that helps police utilize these laws. And then, you know, very simple. If you have to be 21 to buy cigarettes, you should be 21 to buy an assault rifle. Right. Again, this teen white supremacist was able to get his hands on three long guns, because even though you have to be 21 in the state of New York to buy a handgun, you only have to be 18 to buy a long gun. Um, And sadly, Trump appointed judges are are striking those laws down. They just did here in California. And so those are those are just scratching the surface of what we could be doing. But we have a, a narrow majority in the Senate. Uh, and, and we have, right. you know, we have a lot of states where there are Republicans in charge of state houses, or there are preemption laws that prevent mayors and cities from making policies that will save lives where they live. No, that's a good point. The Supreme Court has a concealed carry law that they're about to rule on. Just for people who are keeping track at home, can you explain what this law is and what and what the status is? This is an NRA lawsuit. The plaintiffs want the Supreme Court to essentially rob the American people of their right to pass laws and protect themselves from gun violence. They want to impose a guns everywhere agenda, that's the NRA's agenda, to allow more guns in public spaces. Look, this is a conservative court. 
more than in my lifetime, right? Yeah. If they want to take a historical approach, which several of the justices have said they subscribe to, then the New York's statute around permitting should be upheld. But if, if extremism wins out, then we will have to, and by we, I mean the gun violence prevention movement, we will have to go state by state and mitigate all of the fallout. Um, and, and, you know, there are real consequences if, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of gun manufacturers. Um, they really want this lawless gun free-for-all in our community. In New York, it will mean that you'll have permitless concealed carry, right? It will impact how permits are given and it will make it easier to get a permit. One of the things that struck me as like a possible way to keep, uh, you know, again, the idea here is in American life, people don't stop doing things until they get in trouble. With the Sandy Hook case, the families were able to hold the gun manufacturers liable, right? Right. So, you know, that is an interesting case because there's this law passed by Congress called PLACA, which basically means that unlike any other industry in this country, it is very difficult to sue gun manufacturers for their products, the misuse of their products or the malfunction of their products. And what the Sandy Hook court case was able to do was bypass that law and sue them around the way guns are marketed, specifically to children, to dangerous people like white supremacists. And as a result, uh, the, the really interesting insights we're getting into how gun manufacturers and lobbyists have operated to try to ensure that there are more guns in more places, regardless of the dangers that it poses. Um, really, the reckless and lawless approach that they have taken to sell guns uh, is finally being revealed. And it is, it is a way in to holding manufacturers accountable. And, and we've also been able to go into states like New York and actually reverse that federal law at a state level so that gun manufacturers can be held accountable. And I'll tell you, that is their worst nightmare. Right. So it's hard for me to imagine the Supreme Court not doing the most reactionary, conservative <laughs> thing. I mean, have do you have any indication from the oral arguments how it's been going or anything like that? We really don't know. I mean, there's been concerns about um, Alito saying things around guns in the subway and whether that would be problematic, oh, which we, we believe would be. Um, yeah, I really don't say. As someone, Jesse and I can both attest, I think that, yes, making the subway more dangerous would not solve any problems. <laughs> but I don't know how, as a justice, you don't see what's happening in this country every single day and, and uh, think that making it easier to access guns would be better for America. I mean, you know, if more guns and fewer gun laws made us safer, we would be the safest nation in the entire world. And instead, we have a 26 times higher gun homicide rate than any peer nation. The NRA's agenda, you know, the, the lie that it sold us, that more guns make us more safe is, is false. It's been proven to be false. Why do you think, like, the NRA is out of business, right? Like, they're in terrible, terrible trouble. And yet, we somehow, we're still uh, held hostage by them. Why is that? I would argue that it's not really them anymore. Oh, interesting. The rhetoric that they have really embedded in our culture that the they really started. I mean, if you go back to Waco, 
right? That is when the NRA realized that they could fundraise off of these radical messages. And that's when George Bush Sr., the former president, resigned from the NRA, uh, when they started to refer to government officials as jackbooted thugs. And really, it was originally supposed to to help them raise money. And what it became was part of their, their policy platform. And you know, it's it's like an overlapping circle now, right? The the NRA's agenda, the the Republican agenda, the Christian nationalist agenda, and that is that gun extremism is a recruiting tool. It's really an organizing principle for all the right wing extremists and related groups, which has increased something like thirty percent in the last few years. These groups, uh, so called, you know. Uh, militias. And, and it, it gets these young white men through the door or more likely an online meeting site to radicalize them, not dissimilar to what we saw in Buffalo this weekend. And then they use conspiracy theories like the great replacement theory. Again, these theories were originated and propagated by NRA leaders to stoke fear and then ultimately recruit new members. Right. What could people listening to this podcast do Well, I I wrote a whole thread this weekend because, you know, I was getting so many texts from friends who are not activists, who are not involved in this, who said, like, don't you feel hopeless? How do you keep doing this work? And and what I said back is, like, what is the other option? (laughs) That we sit on the sidelines and allow our brothers and sisters, particularly those in black and brown communities, to be slaughtered? Is Is that the option? Yeah. It isn't. We have to all do this work. And, and I, I tell the story of someone I read about before I became an activist, and she made sandwiches for people who were unhoused. And she said in this newspaper article that so many people reached out and said, how can I help you? Can I give you a donation to make more sandwiches? And what she said was, it would be really helpful if you made your own damn sandwiches. The point being that you can't count on other people to do this work. You have to get off the sidelines and you have to find a piece of this that you're passionate about and you have to do it. And we are now the largest grassroots movement in gun violence prevention. We aren't just moms anymore. We're mothers and others. We're students and survivors. We're men and non-moms. And we are doing this work every single day at all levels. So if you're interested in working with city councils or school boards or in state houses or in Congress or in corporate boardrooms or to educate people about secure gun storage, there is a piece of this work for you. And it is so simple. You just have to text the word READY to 64433 and a volunteer will immediately reach out and get you involved. But we have to use our voices and our votes on this issue. You know, I'm thinking of the well-intentioned white women who voted for Governor Yunkin in Virginia to show Democrats or to maybe punish them, to, to, to teach them a lesson about closing schools too long. But these are the same people who are forcing guns into schools, where again, black and brown students are most at risk. So I would just encourage everyone to get involved in this issue and to vote only for guns and champions. Interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. This was super interesting and also so upsetting. Yeah. Andy. Molly. Who has gotten your ire today? My ire today is aimed at a guy who's been a longtime rock and roller. You know, I remember as a teenager listening to some of his songs. Wango Tango comes to mind. Oh, Jesus Christ. 
So here he is. He's at a he's at a Trump rally, and he's he wants he's telling people to uh, bash the skulls of Democrats and Marxists and communists. Force, if I do say so myself, everybody in your life to think of what the enemies of America have done in the last fourteen months, and that they didn't sneak into the White House. They lied. They cheated. They scammed. And every day, the Democrats violate their sacred oath to the Constitution. And if you can't impress your friends on that, they shouldn't be your friends. So, thank you for inviting my beautiful wife, Shemaine, and I, and my friends, and my guitar. This is a 1966 Gibson Birdland from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Does it sound as good out there as it does up here? By the way, if you don't eat enough medicine and you're not clean and sober, you can't play licks like that. <laughs> so I love you people madly, but I'd love you more if you went forward and just went berserk on the skulls of the Democrats and the Marxists and the communists. This, that's a lot of strong talk for a guy who somehow managed to get a whole bunch of uh, deferments from, uh, from the draft. When he's when when he, when his country uh, called him, and which by the way I'm not opposed to. I'm opposed to the draft, and you know I I don't have a problem with people who don't want to serve, but I have a problem with chicken hawks. And Ted Nugent is a chicken hawk, and he's a guy who gets up there and talks a good game. But when it comes down to putting himself on the line, he's one of the first people to run away, much like Molly's favorite former president, Donald Trump. <laughs> so he gets my fuck that guy for, first of all, saying shit like that, like right after a mass murder f- from someone who was espousing, as, as we said, you know, what have become mainstream Republican values. So he, he managed to say that right after that. And a guy who also, uh, again, he's he's big on encouraging other people to bash skulls, but not so big on uh, putting his own, you know, fists where his mouth is. So fuck that guy. I don't even know who Ted Nugent, I mean, I sort of know who he is, but I'm happy to know as little as possible. My fuck that guy, his name is Pete Ricketts. He's very rich and fancy. He is the governor of Nebraska. He has no hair and nothing wrong with not having hair. And he thinks that if you're raped or incest, you should definitely be forced to carry your baby. Again, I just want to say this. 93% of all abortions happen in the first trimester. Okay, so we are not talking about babies here. We are talking about a blastocyst that is the size of a uh, fingernail clipping, gets to be about the size of a lime. You know, we are not... Your quote-unquote baby has a tail. These are not babies. And also, I would like to point out, we had Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi. You'll remember Mississippi as being 50th in the country in most <laughs> metrics of child yeah, like, like health education. and safety, yeah. education, infant mortality. I mean, Mississippi is its a state that does not do for its people. And so Tate Reeves says in a tweet that he is going to become a sanction of life because he's going, you know, he's mad at California 
for trying to become a place where you can go to get abortion. So Tate wants to know that he's going to become an oasis for life. Again, you're an oasis for life. Like, stop having, you know, improve your maternal, fetal, um, you know, have less women die in childbirth or pregnancy, protect the children you have. You know, they are, Mississippi is just, uh, has really been uh, just an absolute embarrassment and all of those metrics. And so, again, they both get a hearty fuck you from me. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think he's, is he, is Hunter Estes, is he, is he Tate Reeves's communications person? Yes. Yeah. He <laughs> tweeted, life begins at conception. Every heart that beats inside the womb deserves a chance to beat outside. So he apparently, and I guess this is where being 50th in states in education comes into play. He thinks there's a heartbeat at conception. I think that's right. <laughs> but it's good. It's good that the people who are making laws determining, you know, how women are not allowed to have control of their own bodies, it's good that they have no understanding of science. They're absolute morons. Yeah, I think it's really good for the country and for the world. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics and science will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.